Good morning, IGC. So my name is Jesse. Uh, I'm a, the new pastor here at Indoble Grace, and this is my first Sunday preaching with y'all um, as your pastor, so it's exciting to be here. We, uh, we drove from Virginia, which is a long way. It's like 44 hours in the car. Um, half of that was just me with my five-year-old and my four-year-old. My wife wanted to fly halfway through. Um, you know, sufferings, sufferings of marriage. But anyway, we've been here for about three, uh, three weeks and we're uh, settling in and we're very excited to be here, to be joining you. And I'm excited to, to bring the word to you this morning. Tom and Wade have been taking us through First Thessalonians. But we're going to take a brief hiatus from there to do a two-part series on the glory of Christ. Once a day, and then I'll finish it about three weeks after we finish Thessalonians. So why the, why, why glory? Why begin with glory? I think glory is an important, a good and beautiful thing to begin with. As we start this relationship, you and I, the pastor to a congregation, I want you, I want to start on the first on the right foot, and you can't go wrong with the glory of God. But that's a little bit Christianese, right? What is the glory of God? And so that's what I want to spend today unpacking. What is this glory? What are we made for? Um, so let's jump into our text. Uh, we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we'll start on verse 4. Uh, it, you can look on your bulletin, or I invite you also, uh, if you've got a Bible, to open it up. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything that's coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now with the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness was far exceeded in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, and when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed." Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it communicates your glory. And we ask, oh Lord, that we might behold it. Would you lift up the veil on our hearts? 
that we might see you and love you, that we might be awed once again by the great God that you are. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. So this passage is a, is a thick passage. It deserves more than one sermon. So we're not going to do it all. But I want to enter into it at this point of glory. If, uh, the, the, the whole second paragraph on your bulletin, it mentions glory ten times. And it kind of climaxes in verse 18, this, this sight of glory. And so we're going to look at glory. And I have three questions for us. First, what is glory? We'll look at that first. What is glory? What is the surpassing glory? And how can we become glorious? What is glory? What is the surpassing glory? And finally, how do we become glorious? So first, what is glory? When we think about glory, it's it's a bit of a strange word. It's a bit outmoded for many of us in modern times. But I think... I think that we have an intuitive understanding of what glory is. A couple of weeks ago, uh, we, as a family, took our first trip over the bridges um, to, to Muir Woods. There's got to be a better way from the Bay Bridge to the Golden Gate Bridge. That was awful. But anyway, in Muir Woods, you know, there are these massive, massive redwoods, right? They're glorious. And as you stand before these trees that have been growing for a thousand years, and meanwhile, I'm getting into this fight with my five-year-old, I realize, hey, maybe I should have some perspective here. <laughs> maybe maybe the thing that I'm frustrated about isn't really that worth being frustrated about. I, I, in the face of this tree that's a thousand years old. Or what about the Grand Canyon? Have you ever stood on the, the brink of the Grand Canyon? It's it's over five thousand feet deep, right? There's there's a glory there. There's a glory. So so we appreciate glory. Others of us might be pursuing it to for us to become glory, right? There's a lot of of sports terms for glory, right? The World Cup, seeking World Cup glory, Olympic glory. Glory is something that we do pursue, right? And various of us pursue it in our jobs, pursue it pursued in our accomplishments. That's kind of our intuitive sense of glory. But what does the Bible say about glory? Well, as we look at this passage, so verses 7 through around 16, Paul's actually making a reference to the Old Testament. So we're going to unpack the story there. It's a flashback, and then we'll come back. So what is glory? So Paul is referring to actually Exodus Chapters 33 to 35. It's this episode, as you, as you might know, after Israel is saved by God from Egypt, they go into the wilderness and they come to Mount Sinai where God brokers a, a covenant with them. And Moses goes up onto this mountain. And as he's on this mountain, he, he, this is where the Ten Commandments come from. God bestows the Ten Commandments on Moses, the rest of the law. But while Moses is up there, they have perhaps the most mysterious and intimate dialogue with the Lord in the whole Old Testament. Not only does God give him the law, he fulfills a peculiar request that Moses asks. Moses says, please show me your glory. And the Lord replies, you cannot see my face, for if you do, you will die. But I will make my glory pass by so that you can see my back. And the Lord then descends in a cloud, 
upon Moses and reveals his glory. So when Moses gets down the mountain after this incredible experience of, of the cloud of the Lord, he doesn't realize it, he doesn't realize that his face is shining. It's shining. It's, it's bright. Because, as the text said, he was talking with God. And the people see this and they're afraid. And so to accommodate their fears, he puts a veil over his face. That's the story that Paul is going to reference here. Please show me your glory. It's an extraordinary request. What is Moses asking there? Please show me your glory. Well, it's a request for revelation, right? For intimacy. But in effect, Moses is asking to know the Lord. You see, God's glory is his essence. It's who he is. And so when Moses says, please show me your glory, he's saying, I want to know you, God. I want to see you for who you truly are. The Hebrew word for glory is kavod, which means heaviness or weight. The more weighty, the more substance, the more glory. And there's nothing more weighty, more substantial than God himself. I want you to think about glory like gravity, right? It's a force that acts upon you, right? None of us can just, like, fly in here. Why? Because the earth has a certain glory, right? Gravity. And so we can't move however we want. It's the same in the solar system. Our, our, our sun is in the very middle, and it has this glory, this gravity, that pulls everything into orbit. That's what glory does. It acts on us. And so what Scripture says is that that's like God. God is so glorious, so magnificent, that all of creation should rotate, revolve, orient itself around Him. Glory. Glory also, there's something dangerous about glory. You don't mess with it. Right? When you're standing on the, the, the edge of the Grand Canyon, you don't just... Act trivially, right? This thing, if you don't respect this canyon, it could claim your life. Mount Everest, think of that. Glory requires a certain respect. It's true of God as well. Now, I, I, I fear that in our day and age, that we've kind of lost this aspect of glory. The Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor has described our era as a secular age. And one of the things he means by that is that there is an unprecedented, quote, self-sufficient humanism. In other words, that we don't really believe that there's anything more than just people thriving. And that's what we should orient our lives around, a self-sufficient humanism. We believe that people are it. So let's make sure that, that, that we take care of people, right? So government, activism, that is the primary way that we can demonstrate, that we can be good. So our culture has this resistance towards glory. It knows that humans are glory, but it doesn't know why. But Scripture goes out of its way to say, yes, people are, we are glorious. And the reason why is because we, we were made in the image of a glorious God. And there's something about being human that reflects who our God is. Because he's bestowed upon us glory. Now Moses hints at what God intended for mankind. 
a glorious fellowship. Moses lingers in the light of God's glory, and he comes up gleaming. His face is lit up. He's glorified. He shows that God's glory is communicable. It's like the flu, right? You catch it when you're around it. But it's good. It's good, God's glory. Moses is staring at the Grand Canyon in a a multiple of 1,000. And yet it, it is the Lord. It's God. Please show me your glory, Moses says. But something's wrong. Why does Moses have to even ask that question? Please show me your glory. It's a request that betrays a catastrophe. Why is it only Moses up there? Why hasn't Moses seen God's glory before? Why has he waited so long? And this catastrophe is narrated in Genesis 3. You see, Adam and Eve were made to be in God's presence, His glory. And yet, they reject it. They say, we want glory on our own terms. Their desire for glory was good and right and true, but what they wanted was a glory independent of God. We want to be glorious on our own. Self-sufficient. Self-sufficient. And that in itself was a rejection of God's glory. So all of a sudden, people began to not be able to handle God's glory. Because God's glory is demanding. It's all demanding. Paul in Romans one twenty three calls this an exchange. He says, They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Mankind lost the appetite and ability for true glory. Friends, each one of us has a desire, a hunger for glory. That's how we're made. And where do you seek it? Where do you seek for glory? Is it in education, being the smartest? Silicon Valley seeks glory in innovation and entrepreneurship. Is it in money or security? Do you seek glory in being the best father or mother? Like Another question to get at this is, where do you want to be praised? Where do you want people to see you and respect you? That is the place where you are pursuing glory. And yet, the Bible is clear that there is no, no glory that will satisfy us except for God. So what is glory? You are made for glory. You are glorious because God is glorious. But Paul says there's actually a surpassing glory. So let's go to our second question. What is the surpassing glory? So now we know that Paul's reference here in verse 7 is Moses. Look at verse 7. It says, Now in the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory. Carved in letters on stone. That's a reference to the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. The scripture says that God wrote those himself. It's telling that the most clear revelation of God's glory was also the revealing of the law. You see, glory demands something of us. It dem- there's an imperative in every glory. To know God's glory is also to know goodness. When Moses asks, please show me your, your glory, you know what God says? He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. 
God's glory is his goodness. His goodness. Which is why he gives Israel the law. If God is going to be their God and dwell with them, then they need to live their lives in such a way that it's good. That God can live with them. A most holy God. There is no morally neutral glory. No morally neutral glory. That's why Paul equates sin with falling short of the glory of God, right? For all have sinned, Romans 3.23, and fallen short of the glory of God. And Paul's whole point in verses 7 through 11 is that this giving of the law, this Mosaic covenant, has been surpassed in glory by what he calls the new covenant in verse 6. If you look at uh, verse 6, if you're an underliner or a highlighter, I'd encourage you to, to underline or highlight new covenant. That's where we get the word New Testament, right? This is the New Covenant, the New Testament. And Paul's point here is to compare these two things. What Moses did, this covenant that God had brokered with Moses, and this New Covenant. You see, there was something wrong with the Mosaic Covenant. Well, actually, there's not something wrong with the covenant. There's something wrong with people in the Mosaic Covenant. Because however glorious the Mosaic Covenant was, it only had the power to kill. Look at the look at the terms that, that Paul uses for this Mosaic covenant. In verse seven, he says, "The ministry of death." Isn't that an epic term? Sounds like a J.K. Rowling. The ministry of death. And then also in verse nine, the ministry of condemnation. Don't you sometimes feel like your spouse has that ministry, right? or your parents, or your in-laws? The ministry of condemnation. The ministry of condemnation. That's a rough ministry. Now, what he's saying here is that what Moses had, what God did, did not have the power to give the people the ability to obey. There's nothing wrong in God's law. It's everything to do with us. It's like when you give your kids a rule and within one minute they've broken it. Purely hypothetical in the Robinson household. Never happens with us. Right? Like, like one minute you just said, don't throw that. And then they throw it. That, that's what the law does for us. That's who we are. Even adults. Even adults. As soon as Israel receives the law, ironically they break it. Like Moses comes off the mountain. Israel said, we were going to obey God alone. He comes down and they're worshiping a golden calf. As soon, as soon as the law comes, they break it. So this ministry of condemnation, right? We are laid bare. We can't do it. If you're not a Christian, this might seem odd to you that we inherently fall short of God's glory. But I actually think that we universally recognize this. Like intuitively, we know that none of us have what it takes, right? That we are insufficient in some capacity. You see, glory requires substantial effort. To achieve glory in your field, you have to work tirelessly and even perfectly, but no one can do that, can they? Like every one of us knows that we fail in some regard. We fall short, which is why so many of us live frenetic, frantic, anxious lives. We know that we do not measure up. So many secular religious people are living condemned by a law that can never fulfill 
falling short of true glory. But there's hope in the contrast, because Paul contrasts this ministry of condemnation with what he calls the new covenant, the ministry of the Spirit. Those are biblical code words for Paul. You see, God had long recognized the problem with people, the problem with that Mosaic covenant, and he actually promised to do something about it, to fix the bug. He, he promises in the prophets. Listen to Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. And this new covenant will be, he says, I will put my law within them. If the law is not doing what it should outside of them, I need to put it in their hearts. And they, they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Or Ezekiel 36, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. That's why we just had a baptism. Right? This symbol, baptism symbolizes this new covenant that God is cleansing us. Cleansing us. He says, I will put my spirit within you. If we cannot do the law ourselves, God is going to come and abide in us and empower us himself that we can begin to be good. You see, the law expressed God's glory, but what was needed was a heart transplant. Right? If your doctor says, hey, your heart is bad, it doesn't matter how much you exercise, it's not going to make a difference. If that exercise might make it worse. What you need is a heart transplant, and that's exactly what the new covenant is. And what Paul is saying is that when Jesus came to die on the cross and to be, to be resurrected, that he has inaugurated, he's started this heart transplant. He's begun this new covenant. And this new covenant, friends, is way more glorious. It's way more glorious. Why? Because it's not about us. It's not about what we can do. It's about God. What God has done and will do in us. And that is infinitely more glorious infinitely more glorious. Did you see those verses? Look at verse 5. Did you see those like those verses in verse 5 when it says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Do you guys, do you feel insufficient this morning? Do you, do you feel insufficient as a parent, as a spouse, as a friend, as a worker? Friends, there is a sufficiency that is outside of you that Jesus Christ promises to give you. So that is the surpassing glory. Do you see how glorious this is? That we who come to Christ have become sufficient, righteous because of what Jesus has done. And even glorious. So let's look at our third question. How do we become glorious? And for this last question, let's look, let's narrow in at verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. He says, and we all, beholding with unveiled face. Remember that Moses alone saw the glory of God. It was only him. None of the people got to see it. They all got an unveiled version because it was too glorious for them. But Paul, in verses 12 through 17, declares that Christ has taken down the veil. 
said, now everyone, he says, we all, it's universal. Everyone who comes to the Lord can now taste and see that the Lord is good. The glory of the Lord. We, anyone who turns to the Lord now has access to his glory. And, in effect, every single Christian has a more unfettered access to glory than Moses. The preeminent saint. Like, you're way better off than Moses. Because you have seen the glory in Christ. And remember, Moses' face reflected the glory of God. Merely being in the presence of God transformed his appearance. He was literally being glorified by the radiance of God's glory. And the same is true of everyone who looks at Christ. When you turn to Christ and see him, his glory will transform you. That might seem strange. It's kind of a weird philosophy of personal transformation, right? Like, like, how do you want to grow? I'm going to stare at this guy. This guy. I'm going to stare at this dude. Behold his glory. Now, it might seem silly that we're transformed by mere sight, but a couple years ago, the New York Times had an article called To Fall in Love with Anyone, Do This. You've probably seen this. Um, psych- psychologists who are constantly up to all sorts of evil were trying to like socially engineer people falling in love. And so they came up with this, this system where you would ask, you'd ask a stranger like a certain number of questions, and these questions were to promote intimacy. And then along with that, you then stare at someone's eyes, like uninterrupted eye contact, for four minutes. Four minutes. Now the researchers have said that there's something about that gaze that actually changes you. That you begin to love this person who you didn't know like an hour ago. Um, it's This might be a good practice for your marriage here. Staring silently for four minutes. It's really weird. Um, but it does something to you. There's something about our sight. right? We see this in newborns. Newborns far, uh, by far prefer eye contact. Right? The face of their mother. It transforms them. It makes, it gives them the desire for this person. Friends, that is just a pale picture of what looking at Jesus does. When you look at Jesus, when you have that eye contact with Him, beholding His glory, He begins to transform you. Looking at Jesus. Paul says, yes. Look, behold God's glory. And then he fixes our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why a sermon on glory and double grace? Well, we as a church can commit ourselves to all sorts of really good things. Like good preaching, sincere worship, fervent prayer, care for the poor, missional living, like community groups. Like this is, these are all things that we as a church do. You're doing them already. We're going to continue to do them. But I want us to see that there is a higher calling, a transcendent reality, even an ontological duty to the glory of God. That what, that, that to be the church of Christ is not merely to be a warm community. It's not merely to, to be a practicing religious group. It is first and foremost to be witnesses of the glory of Jesus Christ. 
That's what being in church is. That we have seen Jesus and we've been transformed by his glory. And we know, we know that this is what life is about. This is what life is about. That is what we as a church are going to be about. It's about the glory of Christ. To abandon all lesser glories, to be transfixed by the stunning glory of God. The glory we were made for and saved in. But what does that mean to behold the glory of the Lord? It sounds Christianese. Like, what does that really mean? How do we do that? We'll see this in chapter 4, but Paul equates that to the light of the gospel. Beholding the glory of the Lord is rehearsing his gospel, believing it, proclaiming it. And so we are going to behold the gospel in God's word week after week in the preaching of the word. That's why it's so imperative that you have a personal devotional life. That you are, are reading the word with your family. Because in that, you're beholding the glory of the Lord and you are being transformed. As soon as you lock eye contact with Jesus in the word, he is changing you. He's changing you. We're, we're going to behold the glory of Christ in worship. We're going to behold the glory of Christ in prayer. When you behold Christ, you cannot not pray. It comes out of us. This is what it means to behold the glory of the Lord. And we do not behold the Lord because that's what the world needs, although it is what the world needs. right? The, the world doesn't need another good social organization who's doing good in the community. That's good and right, and we should be doing that. No, what the, what the world needs is to see a witness to God's glory. That there is something, that there is someone who demands something, that we are made for something greater than our own personal ambitions. And what do we see when we look in the face of Jesus? Love. You see, when you look at the face of Jesus Christ, you look at the face of one who's given his life for you. That God has shared his glory because he loves you. Because he wants you in his presence. And friends, that is a love that will utterly devastate you and reconstitute you. It's glorious. When we look at the face of Christ, it is a, a righteous, searing love that will not tolerate our petty idols. In fact, when we look in the face of Christ, we see glory. And our vain glories are melted away. And we become glorious. So in double grace, let's commit to behold this glory, his glory together. And his precious, glorious gaze will remake us. And friends, we will together, in the gaze of Christ, become glorious. Become glorious in him, our Lord. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven. Lord, we pray against those who are laboring under this covenant of the letter, trying to put together a law, trying to be righteous, trying to be sufficient. And would they instead receive your sufficiency in Jesus? Thank you that you remake us by your gaze. And so we pray, O Lord, that you would fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith and that we would be made glorious in his beautiful image. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.